I suppose that every generation considers the generation that follows the most privileged generation in the history of mankind. We think of that, except in the case, of course, of wars or natural disasters. And that is true today. We think of the generation, especially those of us who are older, that is coming behind us as the most privileged. It's the same thing after World War II, the generation after 1946. The baby boomers generation was thought to be the most privileged. We think of millennials as the most privileged generation. And there is some truth to that observation. We're living in a day and age where, of course, there are young people who have never known of days when there were no malls, when Eden Center did not exist. We do not know of days in which grocery stores did not have the kind of choices where if you were from certain parts of this country, you only got oranges once a year at Christmas. And of course, there's a generation that comes that does not know what it is to live without Walmart or YouTube or iPhones or tablets. This is the most privileged generation. A generation in which information is at the tip of our fingers. Our children know more facts, a lot of it useless, but they know a lot more facts than we will ever, in some of us, in our own lifetimes. They have access to education and opportunities and fields of endeavors that were never open to us, careers that we never even thought would have been invented. Great privileges. But we who are Christians have greater privileges than all of these combined. I would want to suggest to you and argue a thesis this morning that Christians are the most privileged of men anywhere and at any time. In fact, the writer of Hebrews makes this message, focuses on the privilege of being God's children some 2,000 years ago. And he makes this point in Hebrews chapter 12. What he does in chapter 12 is that he's calling upon believers, believers who are tired and weary in the Christian life, to run this race, to continue to persevere, and guided by the Holy Spirit, writing by divine inspiration because Scripture comes from the very breath of God. It is the product of God. He's writing under divine revelation. And he begins chapter 12 by saying to them, I want you to endure in this Christian race, and I want you to do so by looking on one who has endured, greater than all the great men and women of faith that we have enumerated in chapter 11. I want you to look to Jesus, because he endured the cross. And he encourages them, to endure by viewing suffering not as something bad happening to them, but as part of God's discipline of his children so that we should share his holiness. 
Anyone who runs a Christian life and lives a Christian life, anyone who runs a Christian race, lives a Christian life, will find that there are trials and hardships and pain in the Christian life. But the writer says that those who run this, if they are to endure, they must look at their sufferings as part of God's fatherly discipline because He loves us and because He desires that we should share His holiness. In the same chapter, and in the passage that preceded the one where we read, uh, he tells them that if they are to pursue this race, they are to pursue peace and holiness. The Christian race must be run in holiness. And he gives them a vivid example of an unholy man, a godless man in the Old Testament known as Esau, who sold his birthright, the heritage he'd received, for a plate of soup. And he says, don't be like that man. That was an immoral and an ungodly man, don't be like him. But in eight, verses 18 to 29, the writer, still on the theme of perseverance, says to them, I want you to consider yourself privileged. I want you to consider yourself the most privileged of people. And so he tells them that they are privileged as the new covenant people of God in verses 18 to 24. And in verse 25, to 29, he applies this. He says, because you are privileges, you're privileged before God, this is what you must do. This is how you should live. I want us to look at this then section. The passage, of course, verses 18 to 29 divides into two parts. The first part looking at their privileges, the second part looking at their responsibility. I want us to look at this then, this, this passage together, these two sections, under these headings. First of all, the passage teaches us that believers belong to the joyful community of the heavenly Jerusalem. Christians belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. Secondly, that believers belong to the heavenly city or the heavenly Jerusalem because of Jesus Christ, the mediator. And thirdly, we will see in the text that the privilege of belonging to the heavenly Jerusalem, the people of God, demands from us obedience and acceptable worship. Let's take them the first in this order. The writer emphasizes that they, as believers, belong to the joyful community of the heavenly Jerusalem. And he tells them that in verse 18, he says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. Even here is a statement that needs unpacking. For, he's saying, don't be like Esau, this immoral ungodly man. Don't abandon the faith. Don't apostatize. For you have been given a great privilege to be a Christian. You have not come to the mountain that can be touched. This language of mountain, though the text, at some, some may see the text as omitting the term mountain, nevertheless it is implied. What the writer does here is that he begins to show them their privilege by contrasting them with the Old Testament people of God. He's going to contrast those who are members of the New Covenant with those who are of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he says, for you have not come to the mountain that can be touched, that physical mountain. He's talking about Mount Sinai. Oh, the, the, he's not named the mountain here. The, the, the term mountain is there, but the name of the mountain, sorry, is not present. He did not say Mount Sinai, but everything in the text is pointing to Mount Sinai. He says, you have not come to the mountain 
that may be touched. Which mountain? Mount Sinai. He's saying, I want you to understand the privileges you have as belonging to the new covenant people of God. First of all, you are not in the same circumstances as the old covenant, the Old Testament people of God. And what he does is that he takes them back to Mount Sinai. When Israel had crossed the Red Sea and wandered through the wilderness and come to Mount Sinai, he begins to describe their experience at Mount Sinai, first of all, in terms of visible and audible terms. He says, I want you to remind you of what occurred at Mount Sinai when Israel arrived there. And what he describes is a theophany, an appearance of God, a visible appearance of God, or even though Israel themselves did not see God. He reminds them, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, this physical mountain, and that burned with fire. And a mountain which is described as characterized by blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them. The writer describes God's descent on Mount Sinai as described in Exodus 19 and in passages like Deuteronomy 4 as a terrible, awesome, overwhelming, frightening sign. Because Moses teaches that when Israel encountered God at Mount Sinai, that the mountain upon which God descended was on fire. The descent of God was accompanied by thunderings and lightning strikes. There was darkness, dense, thick darkness, billowing up, of course, because of the snow, of, of the smoke that ascended. You think of the summer when it's very hot. In Vancouver, the mountains are on fire and smoke. Well, when God came upon Mount Sinai, the mountain was covered with darkness because of the smoke. This was an awesome, a scary sight. The awesome majesty and holiness of God was on vivid display before the Israelites. This is what the theologian Rudolf Otto called mysterium tremendum, that there is this in the presence of God, which causes humanity to tremble. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 19, not only was a mountain on fire, not only were there lightning and thunderings and darkness, but the very mountain was shaking. There was an earthquake there. It was shaking at the very presence of this awesome God. The writer tells them what they saw. Mountain of fire, lightning, he tells them what they heard. For in chapter, 19, in, chapter, in chapter 12, he goes on and he says in verse 19, And the sound of a trumpet. There was a blast, a long blast of a trumpet with all the fire, with all the lightning, with all the smoke. In the midst of that, there was this wailing, overpowering trumpet blast, perhaps by an angel. And in the midst of all of that, there came... The voice of God. You think of the picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 when John heard 
a great voice, a great sound like many waters. Like when Niagara Falls is at its peak. And this tremendous volume of noise, so he hears the voice of God. And the response, the writer goes on to talk about the response of those who were at Sinai. This was not like the 1st of July celebration. This was not the kind of fireworks that people would be cheering on and saying, wow, wonderful, standing in amazement. Those who were gathered around the mountain, seeing the visible display of the majesty and the power of God, they were terrified. And they begged that God should no longer speak to them. His commandments were awesome and overwhelming. For even if one were to touch that mountain, God had commanded that that individual were to be killed. The people were terrified. And Moses, this very man who's been called to go up the mountain, to go into the very presence of God, this man whom God had called from his youth to serve him, this man who has been told he must ascend in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the cloud, in the midst of the smoke, in the midst of the loud voice, this man said he is exceedingly afraid and trembles. You see, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God causes us to step back in fear. If we do not tremble in the presence of God, it is because we have never truly seen him in his holiness. And they were afraid. My friends, I want to suggest to you that fear characterizes those who belong to the old covenant. Not only fear, but distance. The very fact that they could not come close to the mountain was a vivid picture of their separation from God. So the writer describes their experience under the old covenant as one characterized by separation and by fear. He is now then going to contrast the privilege of being under the new covenant. For he tells them then, he says in verse 22, But you have come to the Mount Zion, or to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And the but that begins this verse, Verse is strong. It's a strong contrast. You have not come to that mountain, Mount Sinai. You're not old covenant people. But you have come. Throughout this epistle, the writer speaks about coming. He tells us that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. He says, you have not come. But now he says, you have come. You have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God. You have come, he says, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. He mentions the location to which they have come. He talks about Mount Zion. And Mount Zion represented the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was constructed. He's using then images of Jerusalem to refer to the heavenly city. The writer in Revelation, John, in chapter 22, speaks about the heavenly Jerusalem which comes from above. Jerusalem then in scripture is often used as a picture of heaven itself. He says, you have come then to Mount Zion, 
He describes it as the city of the living God and as the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, these terms, Mount Zion, uh, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, are referring to the same thing. Is indicating that the location to which they have come is not Mount Sinai like ancient Israel, like the old covenant, but they have come to the heavenly city, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That they, not only have they come once, but the verb come is the perfect. It means that they have come and they are part of, they have not only access to heaven itself, they are members of heaven. They have come. There is, it seems, a paradox in the text because on one hand, when you read the book of Hebrews, we are told that we have come to heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet, the heavenly Jerusalem is revealed in Hebrews as a pilgrimage, as a place to which we travel. It is a sense, heavenly Jerusalem is, that, is, is a city to which we have already arrived, and yet it is the city to which we journey. It is also the goal of the Christian. We are going towards the heavenly Jerusalem, a city that has its maker and foundation, maker's God, and it has foundations that cannot be shaken. You see, we have come to this city when we were converted. We are part of the heavenly throng. We belong to heaven. We are members of that city. We may have passports that give us citizenship in this country and in other countries, but we are first and foremost those who have come uh, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. That's the privilege of the Christian. He belongs while on earth to another city, a heavenly city. The Apostle Paul mentions this in different ways when he tells Christians in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have been raised with Christ and we are now seated in the heavenly places with him. Paul to the Colossians tells them in chapter 3 that their lives are hidden with Christ in God. There's a sense in which we have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem in an objective sense because we are in Christ who has ascended there. And yet, there is more of that city to come of which we are part and have not yet experienced. But the writer says, this is your privilege. You have access to heaven. You belong to that city. And then he goes on in showing them their privilege. Not only do they have access to this location, he describes the company to which they have come. He says that they have come to an innumerable company of joyful angels. He says... This is where they have come. Now, he goes on. He says that they have come to an innumerable company of angels. And the language there is of angels rejoicing. Throughout the scriptures, angels are seen as the attendants of God in heaven. Well, he says, you've come to this spiritual sphere, the heavenly Jerusalem, in which there are myriads of Thousands and thousands and thousands of angels in festive array who are arrayed in joy. That's the language of the text. These are rejoicing angels. They're not just there serving grumpily, thinking, why do I have to be following the Lord and doing all he asked? They're doing it with great joy. The language says they they have come then to this city, this heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in festive array who are rejoicing before the Lord. He goes on to talk about the church of which they have come and are part. 
in verse 23, he says, You have come to the assembly and the church of the firstborn. They are part of the heavenly church, the church of the firstborn. And the term firstborn here, of course, is often related to Christ, who is the firstborn, means chief and preeminent. They are called the church of the firstborn first because they are linked to Christ, the firstborn, and secondly because they are the preeminent people of God. They are the most favored people of God. He says, you have come to the church, that is to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, and he describes the church in heaven as those who are registered. The writer of, he, of, of Revelation, John says that believers' names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Their names are registered there. It means that they are secure. You have come to the church. Very often, you know, people will say, well, how many, how many billions of Christians are there in the world? And someone will say, well, there are at least two billion Christians in the world. But you need to understand that the, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, is more than two billion people, if those numbers can be taken at face value. The church of Jesus Christ is a church on earth. And theologians call it the church militant, the church at war. Church fighting against sin and against the world and against Satan. The church engaged in battle for Christ. The church militant. But the church is more than the church militant. There is a church triumphant. There's a part of the church that is invisible. Not in a sense that it is the invisible church on earth, but it is part of the invisible church which is in heaven. You and I then belong to a larger body of Christians. A church that consists of billions and billions and trillions of Christians throughout the centuries, many of whom have died and are now in heaven with the angels serving the Lord. He says, you have come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. And he describes them in our passage as the spirit of just men made perfect. They have been perfected in their disembodied state. They are perfected in the sense that they have a relationship with God. They have not been perfected apart from us at the end of chapter 11. You saw that. They have not been made perfect in the sense that they have received every blessing. They have not yet received new bodies. But they are the spirits of just men perfected. They are enjoying a perfect relationship of fellowship and communion with God. He says, you have come then to this city, to Mount Zion, the spiritual city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to an innumerable company of festive angels, and you have come to the heavenly church, the church of the firstborn, God's special people, a church consisting of the spirits of just men perfected. That's where you belong. And then he says in our text, He says, and you have come to God, the judge of all. These are marvelous words. You have come to God, the judge. It's one thing to come to this spiritual location of heaven. It's one thing to have your membership and access in heaven itself. It's one thing to have access to an innumerable company of angels, and a vast throng of saints. But it is quite another to come to the judge of all men. You see, here is a dividing line between us and Old Testament saints. There was always 
a door between them and God. They were always, in a sense, on the outside looking in. They were not able to draw near into the inner sanctuary. But we, in the new covenant, we have come, not only to angels, and not only to saints, we have come to the God who is the judge of all men. What does that mean? It means that we have received acceptance before the holy God, the God who judges men. We have come to him without being burnt, without being consumed, without being destroyed. We have come because, you see, there has been a verdict at his court that has set us not guilty. We have been given freedom from our sins. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have come to the judge of all. We have access to God who is the judge, the holy God. That's who we are. We have access to the greatest of all the Lord himself. So believers belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's a grand privilege. A world consisting of angels and saints and the holy God. But the text would also point out, secondly, that believers belong to this heavenly city and have access to this holy God because of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. He says climactically that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Here is the climactic blessing of the new covenant. You have come to the heavenly realm. You have come to angels. You have come to saints. You have come to the judge of all men, but you have come to Jesus. Oh, that name that is sweeter than any other name. You have come to Jesus. Jesus who is fully God. Who, the one who exhibits the very nature and being of God. The one who came into this world, the one who has ascended into heaven after his death for us. You have come to Jesus. He calls him the mediator of the new covenant. The covenant that he inaugurated. He is the mediator, the in-between, the one who stands between us and God. A, a mediator was one who was an intermediary who brought two feuding parties together. Well, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. In Hebrews, we read of Christ who establishes this new covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, we are told, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also the mediator of a better covenant. It is not only a new covenant that he mediates, but a better covenant which is established on better promises. We read again in chapter 9, verse 15, about this new covenant. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Ezekiel of old promised a new covenant, a new covenant consisting of blessings, blessings For example, God will put his laws in the minds of his people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a new covenant in which 
everyone will know the Lord. One does not have to teach his neighbor in the, in the new covenant know the Lord because all of them from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. It's a new covenant nevertheless in which God had promised the greatest of blessings, forgiveness of sins. Because there we are, we are told, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that stands upon better promises and brings the greatest of blessings, forgiveness of sins. But the writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose mediation, he says, is bound up with his death. For he says, whose blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel, we read in chapter 11, was a saint of old who was murdered by his brother. And his blood cries out from the ground for justice. But Christ, to whom we have come, his blood is far superior than the blood of Abel, for it cries out to God for mercy. His blood is far superior to Abel's blood because his blood achieved great blessings for us. Notice how Hebrews define the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ in Scripture refer to his death. First of all, Hebrews teaches us that the blood of Christ obtained eternal redemption. So in that Signally important chapter 9 of Hebrews, the writer says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It is by his blood, by his death, that Christ bore us and delivered us from sin and delivered us from judgment and delivered us from the power of Satan and eternal death. It is by his blood he obtained eternal redemption. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks better things than Abel. Why? Because it accomplishes redemption. The blood of Christ not only accomplishes redemption, it purifies the conscience. Going back again to the passage in Hebrews 9. The writer says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Christ's blood not only forgives sins, but it liberates our consciences, removes the internal guilt that sin brings. It secures forgiveness. And so we are told, and according to the law, all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9.22. The blood of Christ grants access to the presence of God. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Hebrews 10.19-20. So Christ's blood liberates, delivers us from our sins. His blood cleanses us. His blood forgives us. His blood grants us entrance 
the writer of Hebrews says to these believers, these believers were thinking of straying. Listen, you must not budge. You must not move an inch from Jesus. Why? Because you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to God, but you have come to, an, to, to, to Christ who is the great needed of the saints, whose blood saves, whose blood forgives. You have come to Jesus. And then he goes on to tell them that this privilege of belonging to heaven, having access to God through Jesus Christ, demands obedience. Whatever, you know, whatever club you're a member of, there are going to be privileges, but there are going to be responsibilities. If you, if you are a part of a debate club at university, they're going to respect you. That if you're part of that club, you show up. And if you keep missing, after a while, somebody's going to encourage you not to come back. There are responsibilities. Well, we belong to heaven. And belonging to heaven, though it brings these great privileges, like access to the heavenly body of saints and angels and to God himself and to Jesus Christ, it does bring obligations. And for that reason, the writer then in verse 25 says, see to it. That is, be careful. Be careful that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? He says, be careful, you who belong to heaven and have access to God and Christ, that you don't reject the word of him who speaks. Throughout Hebrews, God is pictured as a speaking God. God in various times and in various ways have spoken to the fathers by the prophet, but as in these days spoken to us by son. God has spoken in his son. The greatest revelation we have comes in Jesus Christ. God has spoken. And throughout Hebrews, you see God speaking warning them not to turn away, to be fearful lest they do not enter into rest. We see that in chapter 2, 1 to 4, the warnings from the one who speaks. We are told that the word of God is living, it is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. The word of God is firm, it is unbreakable. So the Lord gave a promise to Abraham saying, I surely will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply it. And he confirmed it by two immutable things. That is his promise and his oath because it is impossible for God to lie. God's word then is true, is sure, it is powerful. And the writer says, those of us who belong to the heavenly Jerusalem must be careful to hear God's word. For the reason we are, to turn, we are to hear his word is if those on earth refuse to hear the word of God, that is the word of God spoken by mediators like Moses, if those who refuse to hear his word spoken on earth did not escape, that is they face divine judgment, much more if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, that is through Jesus and through his apostles, then we surely will not escape. So he says, we must therefore take heed to hear his word because his word is powerful. And he goes on, he says, whose voice in verse 26? 
shook the earth. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai, he shook the earth with his voice. And he says, but now he has promised, going back to Haggai in chapter 2, he says, but now, once more, I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What is he saying? He said, you need to listen to the voice of God. For the voice of God is that which is powerful, which brings judgment. Just as his voice shook the earth when he came on Mount Sinai, so his voice again will shake the earth in the consummation. So the first thing you must do in response is obedience to the voice of God. His voice will shake creation. Secondly, he says, you must give to God acceptable worship. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, God, his voice has shaken creation. But there is an unshakable kingdom, the kingdom called Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the unshakable kingdom. Since we are receiving that kingdom, he says, let us have grace. Literally, it means, let us be thankful, by which we may serve God. So he's asking us then to grant, or to give to God not only obedience to his voice, but worship. But he says, worship starts with a grateful heart. So he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us be thankful, by which we may serve God acceptably, in a manner pleasing to him. You cannot worship God acceptably unless your heart is thankful. In other words, you cannot worship God in the way that pleases him unless you realize that God has given you a kingdom that is unshakable, that God has made you to be inheritors and heirs of heaven. You cannot really truly praise God and live a life of obedience to him until you have understood the might and the power of God and the kindness of God in your life. So he says, let us have grace. Let us be thankful by which, with a grateful heart, we are able to serve God acceptably by his spirit, of course. We may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Acceptable worship that does not only involve thankfulness, it's not only rooted in thankfulness, but it displays itself in reverence and godly fear. Let me just say that when we worship God, we must always remember that we are coming to God. And he says we are to show to God this worshipful respect and reverence. I'm all for joy in worship, but whatever we do in the church, let's remember that we have come to worship God, and his character demands reverence. For he is still a consuming fire. You see, the God, of, the God of Israel, the God of Mount Sinai has not changed in the New Testament. He's still a God that Isaiah called of eternal burnings, a God of eternal fire. And so we are to come before him and we are to worship him, yes, in joy, yes, in gratitude, but to worship him in reverence, in respect for his person. What do we make of our passage? What does it mean for us here and now? Let me suggest, tease out a few thoughts and leave it with you. I would only suggest to you that you and I should never forget whatever happens around us, that we are children of God and we belong to the city that is real. There's great confusion today over the question about reality, what is real? For many, this is what is real. Terra firma, this world, this world of touch and of sense, a world of sight, a world 
of feeling, of hearing. There are those who view reality as essentially material. Only that which can be verified by empirical data is real. There are those who view real as that which is the constructed, artificial. There are many who live in virtual reality, a world constructed by computer software, governed by keyboard and a mouse. That's reality, virtual reality. But there is another reality. We're not denying that this world, a world that we have around us, a city of glass and of concrete, we're not suggesting that this is not real. But what we are suggesting is that there is a reality that trumps and transcends this earthly reality. It is called the, the Mount Zion. It is called the city of the living God. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem. The world that is truly real, a world that is unshakable, is the heavenly world. And you and I belong to this world if we are in Christ. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a world that can never be overthrown, can never be toppled. This is the world in which God reigns, where the God who is the judge of all men rules. This is the world where he's surrounded by his entourage of angels and there are saints who are justified living with him here and now. And you and I, while we are in this body, we are in heaven in Jesus Christ. We are joined to that heavenly world. There is an umbilical cord between those in heaven and those on earth who are in Christ by his spirit. You belong to another world. And you must live always with this world before you. When you get on the train, when you go to your desk at work, when you pack your bags at night to go home and get in your car or get on the subway, you must know that while you are in this world, you are still a member of the heavenly world. And that when this passing world is done, you will fly away to be with him. You must never allow this world, with all of its demands, force heaven from your view. You must never forget that you have been privileged to draw near to the God who is the judge of all. You must always remember that you belong to heaven, and that's where you're going, and your entire living is living in light of the life which is to come, when you shall join those saints who have gone before. But also, you must cleave to Christ, because access into heaven is only through Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Jesus. You have come to him who is the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. We are living in a world of great inward turmoil. In our world, we have no real remedy for guilt. Sin causes great weight and heaviness, and we go to counselors, and we go to therapy, and they only defer our guilt. They cannot remove it. We are heavily medicated, but we are still under guilt because, you see, sin can only be purged by one means, and one means only the blood of Christ. And here the writer says, you have come to Jesus, to Jesus whose blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. What's the privilege of the church? 
we have Christ. We have him in all of his fullness. We have him in all of his beauty, in all of his riches. We have Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood forgives sins. And I want to, before I let you go, to say to you that if you have come to Christ, you must come again and again to him. You must come in your weakness. You must come in your need. You must come in your sinfulness. You must come to Christ because he's there for you to care for you and to help you. You must come and keep coming to Christ. But if you have never come in faith, if you have never trusted, you must come by faith, believing in Christ and in his work. The only way you can be part of the heavenly Jerusalem is to come to Jesus. And you do that on your knees. You do that in prayer. You do that by faith. Lord Jesus, I come to you and I come to you now. I come in all my brokenness. I come in all my sin. Lord Jesus, receive me and forgive me. That must be your cry if you're not saved. You must come to Christ. And if you come to him, you'll have access to heaven and full access to God. You will have heaven as your residence and God as your father. But you must come by faith on your knees to Jesus Christ, trusting in him, relying on his finished work. And then you must go out to live in obedience to his word as given in scripture. And a life of worship consisting in gratitude and thankfulness for the forgiveness of your sins. You must live a life of reverence and respect. A life that takes into account that God is always there. So that whatever we think and whatever we do, we do in the knowledge that we are before God himself. So that we may serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. May God bless you. May you know the privilege of being a member of the new covenant, of having access to heaven, to God, and to Jesus Christ, and living then in obedience and in worshipful respect for Jesus' sake. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you that while we are in this body, And while we are here on earth, we are with you in heaven. And we thank you that this is not our home. If this, if our hope was in this world only, Lord, then we would be of men most miserable. But our hope is anchored beyond the veil where Christ has gone into the very presence of God. We thank you that our home, our true home, lies in the heavenly Jerusalem, and lies with you. And we'd ask, O God, this day that you would comfort your people, that you'd bless them, that you'd give us this surpassing view of these spiritual blessings, and work in our lives to order our our lives aright, to live as citizens of heaven and as people who are on their way home. Grant that these words may be used, Lord, for our benefit and for the saving of souls. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.